Have you ever felt a visceral attraction to a politician? There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. I am your voice. Ask yourself if they're really telling the truth. This is a secret innuendo being leaked out there about me. I was honestly concerned that he might lie about the nature of our meeting. This is Subliminally Correct, a bi-weekly podcast where we examine all the ways politicians and newsmakers are using psychological tactics to influence you every single day. And now, join myself, Taylor Sherman, certified hypnosis instructor and executive coach, along with my co-host, Alex Dobranek, political consultant and certified consulting hypnotist, on this episode of Subliminally Correct. And welcome to another episode of Subliminally Correct. What do we have up for today, Alex? Well, this week we're going to be journeying to the Iowa Democratic Party Hall of Fame Forum, where all 19 Democratic presidential candidates, or at least most of them, showed up to give uh, speeches about why they believe they're the best candidate to defeat Donald Trump and win the Democratic nomination. Now, in this episode, we're going to be taking a look at some of the candidates that we've had less time to cover in previous episodes and spend a little time with three of them, Cory Booker, Pete Buttigieg, and Elizabeth Warren. And so we're going to take a look at what they have to say about why they believe they're the best candidate. So let's start off with Cory Booker. So with Cory Booker, the thing to take note of is how he's going to be getting back into that football coach mode that we covered in previous episodes. He is somebody who's very high energy and has a lot of enthusiasm. And you're going to hear that come out and get the crowd riled up and on his side. And all the while, he's going to be inserting a lot of really persuasive messaging. So let's take a listen to Cory Booker. Hello, Iowa. And thank you, Troy. I want to congratulate this year's honorees. That's what this actual gathering is about. It's these grassroots leaders that give us what we truly need to win. We have a lot, a lot of presidential candidates here this afternoon. But our strength as a party comes from the grassroots. Our party does not need a savior. We need each other. We need to deepen our bonds, we need to organize, we need to build community strength. I am here literally because of that tradition. My grandma was born and raised in Iowa. My family comes from a mining town called Buxton, where blacks and whites went down into the mines together to carve out of the earth their American dream, where we had a community that lived together, built community together. They built a more beloved community together. They were affirming that we in America have a common purpose, a common cause, a common American dream and destiny. But today those bonds are being tested, leading many to believe that the forces tearing us apart are stronger than the bonds holding us together. We are being tested. When millions of Americans work full-time jobs, pick up extra shifts when they can, but they still need food stamps to feed their family. When there are shrines on our streets to shooting victims, 
like the ones in front of schools and houses of worship across our country. When we have a criminal justice system that, as Brian Stevenson says, treats us better, treats you better if you're rich and guilty than poor and innocent, we are being tested. This is a moral moment in America, and we must meet this test. All right, so here we hear Cory Booker giving us, as Alex said, that football coach attitude. And he starts off by talking about his family. And he leads into it in a really interesting way, which is that he starts off by thanking the grassroots organizers and acknowledging what the event is about. You know, this gathering is about grassroots organizing. And then he really quickly transitions. Our strength comes from the grassroots. He uses this idea of our party doesn't need a savior. We need each other. And so he's contrasting these ideas here. He's contrasting that idea that some candidates might think that they need to be this big figure, kind of Donald Trump-like, or even that the idea of a savior is like what Donald Trump has put himself into. And also with this reality that he himself, Cory Booker, is not going to be that savior type. He's not going to be that. And then as he leads on here, he starts talking about his family. He starts talking about his grandmother being from Iowa. Now... If you really think about it, you know, his grandmother could have been from any of the states. And if he was in that state and he were to talk about that his grandmother was from there, then the people of that state would have applauded. And so his grandmother being from Iowa, what does that really contribute of substance? Not a whole lot, right? But it does acknowledge that he has some roots in Iowa. And then he talks about his family is from a mining town called Buxton. And they went down to the earth to carve out of their earth their American dream. And so I just love all the symbology and the metaphors that he's using here. And what we're going to hear from Cory Booker and what we've heard so far in this clip is that he's really going on to this commonality theme, this community theme, this stronger together theme. Okay, this is the liberal message. This is the talking point, And we're just hearing how so many different candidates can say it in different ways. Yeah, one tactic that he's using here is to sort of build that backstory, that origin story that's relatable, that's something that everybody in the audience can think about when they think of Cory Booker and something that they can relate to. And so when he tells the story about how you know his grandmother's from Iowa and his family is from a mining town, like that is able to connect to the audience but also gives him like that context for why he's there and why you should listen to him. So, you know, he's using, of course, that metaphor and symbolism that Taylor talked about to, you know, really uh, get people to envision those, those roots and that salt of the earth, that, you know, down to earth people and uh, sort of combines all of that to create that imagery there. And then um, he, you know, really drives that as like a, like, this is why you should listen to me. I'm like you. So now I'm telling you about how our community, how we can build the group of people that I am a part of. Like, I am a part of your group. And this is what we're going to do together. Like, he's establishing that progression of thought. And so that's what I find really interesting here is he, he sort of uses the the metaphors to drive his larger point and then uh, once he's gotten everybody on their side, sort of starts uh, suggesting all of these 
these really interesting things. Yeah, and the other thing that he does a lot within his speech, as we analyze the speech here, the other thing that he's doing a lot is that he's talking about contrast. So he's contrasting one thing to the other. So he's contrasting our party doesn't need a savior, we need each other. Well, that's a contrast. One side is here, one side is there. And as he's using this contrast, so he says this thing of, we've come to believe that the forces tearing us apart are stronger than the forces bringing us together. And so apart and together, that's contrast. And he says, we are being tested. Well, this idea of being tested is just quite thematic in here we're being tested where our our values are at the edge and we need to make sure that those values are that they hold strong that they stand true and yet if they're tested that means that they're actually present right when it's being tested people are present to their values they're present to what it is that they're actually um what's important to them and when they're present to them, then that means they're going to vote a certain way. That means they're going to interact a certain way with all of those around them versus it just being ignored. So he's really bringing it up to the forefront with that idea. And we hear again that contrast. So the criminal justice system that treats you better if you are rich and guilty than poor and innocent. And here's that contrast feeding into that identity politics, right? So if you're poor and innocent, Basically, you're a Democrat, right? Like you're a poor person, you're an innocent person. That's how you think. Well, we're not the party of the rich people. We're not the party of that rich, guilty people. We're of the poor and innocent people. Now, he doesn't have to actually say that, but when he uses an example like that, it's definitely playing into the identity of those people who are actually there. Now, in this next clip, as we're listening to Cory Booker continue, we're going to hear him beginning to use this thematic appeal toward and reference back to the civil rights movement. And he's initially going to do it kind of subtly, just using these key phrases that are associated with the civil rights movement. And then he's going to become more specific as he talks through it. And again, listening for that contrast and listening how he is going to be doing this reframing throughout all of what he's saying. So let's take a listen to the next clip. I'm running for president because we can't take four more years of Donald Trump. I'm running for president to beat Donald Trump. And I'm running for president because beating Donald Trump is not enough. We must have bigger aspirations and bolder dreams than just that. Beating Donald Trump is the floor, it is not the ceiling. Beating him. Beating him will get us out of the valley, but it will not get us to the mountaintop. Democrats, we can't let this election be about what we are against. It must be an election about what we are for, who we are for. We are for every American worker because they deserve a living wage, a right to a union, and to retire with dignity and security. We are for public school teachers. We're for valuing them, supporting them, and raising their pay. We are for every American having access to health care. And make no mistake, abortion is health care, and health care is a right, not a privilege. We're for ending mass incarceration. And in the name of every shooting victim in America, 
We will take a fight to the corporate gun lobby and we will win. This is the call of our country. We come from generations that no matter what the challenge, they kept their eyes on the prize. They came up from the mines of Buxton together. They rose from sweatshops and slums. Together they boarded buses knowing that they could be bombed, crossed bridges knowing that they could get beaten. They did not turn against each other in the face of injustice. They stood with each other for each other. They beat the demagogues and bullies and bigots who tried to push them down by doing the work and the struggle and the sacrifice to lift people up. Now, Iowa, it's our turn. This, is ele this election is not a referendum on one person in one office. It's a referendum on who we are and who we must be to each other and for each other. Donald Trump wants this election to be about him on his terms and his turf. That's how he wins. We win when we rise with grace and grit, rise with patriotism, love of country, and love for one another. We will not stay in the valley of darkness and fear. We will rise. We will lift up our voices. We will raise our sights. We will win this election. And America, we will rise. Thank you. Thank you. So what's going on here is that Cory Booker is trying to redefine the decision that a lot of Americans are trying to make right now. So we've got the Democratic Party where the you know front runner is Joe Biden because you know a lot of people believe that Joe Biden is the most winnable candidate. He's the one who can defeat Donald Trump. And that's the number one issue for a lot of Democrats. Even people who didn't vote for Hillary Clinton last year or maybe some that did, um, this is sort of the, the choice that a lot of uh, Democrats see that they have to make. And so what Cory Booker is doing here is taking that decision and reframing it. So now no longer is the decision, you know, who can defeat Donald Trump, but rather who should define the Democratic values, the American values. And so we see him taking that you know, old idea that a lot of people might currently hold and transforming that into another idea of, great, defeating Donald Trump is the floor. I want something more than that. I want someone like Cory Booker, who has, you know, greater aspirations than that. And so that's what I see here. It's really interesting to see him do that. Yeah. And we heard from Biden's speech, right? Remember that part in our episode that we just did on Joe Biden's first rally and Joe Biden had that moment there where he just said, you know, my first step in climate change is beat Trump, beat Trump. And so that's what Biden has been going for here. And, you know, it's not surprising that Cory Booker and others will then acknowledge that and say, hey, this is not really about Donald Trump and just beating Donald Trump. That's just the floor, not the ceiling. And we hear him using this analogy, this this metaphor, the symbolic ideas of, well, basically height, right? So one is a valley, one is a mountaintop, one is a floor, one is a ceiling. He talks about rising up. He talks about reaching out, coming out of the earth. 
This is within his whole speech. He keeps using these particular type of analogies again and again and again. And of course, when he's talking about getting out of the valley and that'll get us out of the valley and it won't get us to the mountaintop, you know, let's recognize here that this is both a religious illusion, right? Walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And it's also a callback to Martin Luther King, right? His speech, I've been to the mountaintop. And we're talking about this. And he then goes into this idea of this is not what we're against, but what we're for, who we are for. And we're for, and then he goes into all of his hot button issues, all of his talking points about prison reform and health care and abortion and guns and, you know, so many of those things in which he talks about. And then at the end there, he talks about this is the call of our country. No matter what the challenge, they... Who was they exactly? They kept their eyes on the prize. Well, that's another civil rights movement illusion. Eyes on the prize. He said they came up out of the minds of Buxton together. Wait, are we talking now about some other American or are we talking about Cory Booker's family? Because I thought it was Cory Booker's family that was from the minds of Buxton. But he just kind of, you know, brings them in. Okay, they came up from the minds of Buxton. They came up from the sweatshops in the slums. I didn't know that he had anyone in sweatshops and slums. But this is a scope ambiguity, meaning the the scope, the full context is not readily known by how he says it. And then he's talking about the buses and the bridges, again, civil rights. And then right at that end there, he says, now, Iowa, it's our turn. But what does he mean by that? It's our turn to do what? Our turn to do, well, when he leaves it unspecified like that, people can fill whatever they want into their picture. And he talks a little bit more about Donald Trump. And toward the end there, he says, we're not going to stay in the valley of darkness and fear again shadow of death, we will raise our sights, meaning our eyes are going to go up, okay, we will raise our sights, and America, we will rise, and that's how he ends it, and it's like rise, in what way specifically, how, what does that mean, but that works well with his metaphors, and it's again, we talk about this vagueness, the abstractness of the language, you know, Cory Booker knows that people are going to fill in whatever picture they'd like to fill in, And for most of his speech, he didn't talk about the issues. He spent, you know, maybe 30 to 40 seconds actually talking of the issues out of those five minutes. And for the rest of it, it was just getting them pumped up, getting them energized, getting them to both not like Donald Trump, but also move, you know, beyond him. And that that was the idea with uh, with Booker's speech here. Now, in this next clip, we're going to be listening to Pete Buttigieg, and we're going to be talking about how. He's basically just Mayor Pete, and there's something we're going to have to say about that. So uh, let's take a listen to this clip. Hello, Iowa Democrats. Thank you to the Iowa Democratic Party, and thank you to the honorees being acknowledged today for demonstrating that democratic politics and progressive values are alive and well in the American heartland. My name is Pete Buttigieg. They mostly just call me Mayor Pete back home. I'm here to tell you who I am, what I believe, and why we're doing this. We're doing this because our values are on the line. And this season in the life of America's political development 
is one to end the idea that American values are property of conservatives and Republicans. Starting with freedom. Freedom is not a conservative value, it is an American value. And while our Republican friends like to talk about freedom like it's theirs alone, we know that freedom includes economic freedom and you're not free if you don't have a living wage in this country. The GOP has sacrificed its ability to claim to be the party of freedom, especially when we see an attack on women's reproductive freedom that all of us, especially men, ought to be standing up to defend. And yes, here in Iowa, where you turned heads around the nation 10 years ago, we know that you're not free if some county clerk gets to tell you who you ought to marry based on their idea of their religion. We know that freedom comes by way of organizing. That's why we stand shoulder to shoulder with labor. And we know that freedom comes by way of education, which is why on day one, the new president needs to appoint a secretary of education who actually believes in public education. Freedom doesn't belong to the Republican Party, and neither does patriotism. When I got on that gray tail C-17 that took me into Afghanistan on the orders of an American president, the flag on my shoulder was not a Republican flag, it was an American flag representing the belonging of all of us in the republic for which it stands. So don't let anybody tell you that they own national security. Not when their vision of security goes no further than putting up a wall from sea to shining sea. Because that's not going to help with cybersecurity. That's not going to help with election security. That's not going to help us name and confront the violent white nationalism that presents a clear and present threat to our country. And I don't have to tell Cedar Rapids that the time has come to treat climate disruption as a security issue that it is. which is why we should not only rejoin the Paris Accords, we ought to have a Pittsburgh summit to bring together American cities and communities to do something about the issue with federal support. Freedom's not a conservative value. Patriotism's not a conservative-only value. And God does not belong to any political party, least of all the one that produced this current president. Now, we got a lot of work to do to vindicate our values, to establish a true democracy where money can't outvote people and politicians can't choose their voters by drawing districts the way they like. A democracy where all U.S. citizens, including those of D.C. and Puerto Rico, enjoy proper political representation in our capital. And maybe even in this greatest democracy in the world, we might go about choosing our president by giving it to the person who got the most votes. Now, I think we're all more or less of one accord on our values, so the biggest question is, how are we going to win? And we're not going to win by playing it safe or promising a return to normal. We are where we are because normal broke. 
And we Democrats can no more promise a return to the 90s than Republicans can deliver on a promise to return us to the 50s. The only thing we can do is to look at that show that this president's created, whatever you want to call it, reality show, horror show, game show, and we're going to change the channel to something completely different. Help me change the channel. Help us win the era. Help us bring about a new era in the life of this country. And we will be glad that it started right here in Iowa. Thank you, and I'll see you on the trail. Thank you. Wow. And what was that music at the end there? <laughs> that was, you know, it was, it was, it was as though the angels, you know, were in fact coming out, uh, right through Pete Buttigieg's, uh, shoulders there. So, you know, so fascinating to hear what he's doing here, where he's talking about what do these values actually mean? You know, the values are on the line and it's a season in American politics and one of the things that I found really interesting about the way that Pete Buttigieg is doing this versus other um, Democratic hopefuls is that he's really addressing all of these talking points. But instead of just saying the talking point and saying the exact words that, you know, oftentimes people are saying again and again on the news networks, he's going into it in an example. And it's not a long example. It's just a really short example. So when he talked about this idea of the um, security um, and the freedom to be able to you know, marry whoever you want to be able to marry so that no county clerk can tell you otherwise, like what that is is that is a, a call out to the LGBT community, and yet he doesn't say, now we stand with our LGBT brothers and sisters. We, you know, he doesn't actually go out and say that. He's just alluding to it through an example. And I really like the way he does this. And I think this actually might be responsible for a lot of his success because he's he sounds fundamentally different and more conversational than a lot of the other hopefuls that are out there that, that are actually talking about these types of things. And if you think about it, he sounds more in alignment with Donald Trump's style because Trump's idea is basically let's simplify everything and just give people the message they need to remember Buttigieg is doing that a little bit here. Now, what we see from Pete Buttigieg here is something that uh, the candidates we're covering on this episode all do. They start off by introducing themselves. You know, I'm P Pete Buttigieg. They mostly just call me Mayor Pete back home. This sort of way of defining yourself in a way that's very relatable. And then, you know, why you should listen to me. And then they start defining the issues and defining the discussion and the decision around, you know, what they think it should be. And so here we've got Pete redefining freedom and patriotism and God. And so he's just picking these ideas and then redefining what they mean and reframing what's going on in the, the larger American discussion. But they're only values that he's picked. And they're only value, values that are favorable to him and his values. And then he stops after he's redefined freedom, patriotism, and God. And he just says this. He says, now I think we're all more or less of accord on our values. So the bigger question is, how are we going to win? So he spends th this time making his case on values. And then he's like, well, now that we all agree on that, here's the next thing. 
uh, a sort of assuming that everybody's just gone along with him and agreed with him. And, and what he's doing here is like, it makes, it reminds me almost of like cult leaders where, you know, part of like how you get a cult following or how you get people to unquestionably like follow you is to not give them time to critically analyze and to think about what you just said. And so you go from a, you know, a thought of, you know, uh, this is my argument on these issues. Great. Now that we've got that out of the way, let's get to action. So moving from why we're doing this to, all right, let's go do this without time for, oh, is this actually correct? Does this align with everything that I already think? And so I just found that really funny and and really interesting here. Yeah. And how he defines this, how he goes and breaks this whole thing apart is really important because if you think about it, people can always agree, you know, okay, freedom is important, right? Like we all agree as Americans that freedom is one of our core values as Americans. Do we all agree on what that freedom means? Well, what Buttigieg does here, what Buttigieg does here is that he actually is acknowledging that freedom is important, but then he goes in to define it and he says, well, you're not free unless you have a living wage, Okay, you're not free unless you have that because that's economic freedom. And how about reproductive freedom of women? And how about this freedom and that freedom? And then he does it also with the topic of security. So he says putting up a wall from sea to shining sea is not going to help with security. It's not going to help with cyber security. It's not going to happen with help with national security. It's not going to help with this kind of security. And it's certainly not going to help with, you know, this other thing. And so he goes through and he defines what this is in accordance with liberal values. And, you know, so when he's talking about God, he says, well, God doesn't have a political party. He he does that in a way where it's in accordance with those who are there in the room. And yet I think some people would think that God actually does have a political party. And they think that it's, you know, it's definitely not the party of the heathens that want to you know, do things like abortion, right? So that's, so this is, this is the idea that he is reframing and he's changing it here. And I really like this bit at the end here where he talks about, you know, Donald Trump's show, right? And he says, you know, and we know that Donald Trump's been running a show and whatever you would call it, whether it's a reality show, which is a a pace, okay? Because that's a way of saying, hey, we all agree that Donald Trump is a reality show guy, right? The Apprentice. And so, whether it's a reality show, a horror show, a game show. And so now he starts to define about what kind of show it is. And then building off of that metaphor, it's we want to change the channel. We want to change that to something, something else. And that's another way of saying we're not going to give Trump all of this attention. We're now going to change the channel to something that's more in accordance with, for example, our values. And then, you know, this really great uh, piece there at the end. We are where we are because normal broke, right? Normal is is no longer there anymore. So now with Elizabeth Warren here, you're going to see a little bit of the same stuff. Again, she'll start off by trying to make her more relatable to the crowd. She'll move into talking about the issues and redefining the issues in relation to her. And then, of course, you know, uh, reframing the entire question, sort of like, how Cory Booker did with, you know, defeating Donald Trump is just the beginning. So let's take a listen here. Yes, I know that I 
Grant. Good to see you. So it is a great honor to be standing on this stage, not something that in a million years I ever thought I would do. I've had ambitions, job ambitions, since I was in second grade. I've known what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a public school teacher. Can we hear it for America's public school? It was a, a pretty rocky path for us. We didn't have any money. My daddy ended up as a janitor. I got to school, dropped out of school at 19 and got married. But I scratched my way back. I finished my four-year diploma and I became a special needs teacher. I have lived the dream job. And let me tell you about teachers. We understand the worth of every single human being. We understand about investing in the future and we never give up. Right now in America, there's a lot that's broken, there's a lot that's wrong, there's a lot that we need to fight back against. But I come to you today with a heart filled with optimism. And the reason is because I've been across Iowa, I've been across this country, and right now in America, there is a real hunger. There are people who are ready for big structural change in this country. They're ready for change, and I got a plan for that. Yeah, in fact, I got a lot of plans, so let me just mention a few. How about a wealth tax on the top one-tenth of one percent? Make them pay two cents. They can afford it. And what can we do with that two cents? We can cancel student loan debt for 43 million Americans. We can provide universal childcare and pre-K for every one of our kids. We can create 1.2 million new manufacturing jobs, rebuild an industrial base right here in America. And on climate change, the truly existential threat bearing down upon us, I don't have just one plan, I got two plans to attack it head on, because we're going to have to fight back. And just one more that I want to mention, and that is Roe versus Wade. I've got a practical plan to protect the rights guaranteed to women under Roe versus Wade, regardless of what the United States Supreme Court does. Yeah, there's a lot broken in this country, the corruption. You know, the first thing we could do is break the stranglehold of the NRA. That would fight back against corruption. But everything I propose comes to one central question. Who does this government work for? Is it going to continue to work just for a thinner and thinner slice at the top? Or are we going to make this government work for the rest of America? I'm in this fight to make it work for the rest of America. And I'm building a grassroots operation to make that happen. I've done 90 plus town halls. I've taken literally thousands of questions. I've been to 20 states in Puerto Rico. And yeah, we're coming up on our 30,000th selfie. <laughs> That's how you build a grassroots movement. Because here's why, why do I have the time to do that? 
because I'm not spending my time with high-dollar donors and with corporate lobbyists. I'm spending my time with you. That's how we build a grassroots movement in America, one that will make a real difference, one where we can win up and down the ticket, one where we can win the White House, one where we can start to make real change come January 2021. Here's what I believe. We should dream big, fight hard, and win. Thank you, Iowa. Yeah, so here we see Elizabeth Warren really trying hard here at the beginning to make herself seem relatable. And, you know, I don't know if she's as successful as the other candidates, but she does certainly like include a lot of interesting nuggets that really give you an insight into her past. So she starts off talking about, you know, how she, you know, apparently growing up or with her family, they didn't have a whole lot of money. Uh, and then she became a teacher. But then she ties that idea of like her upbringing and her original career path of being a teacher to being a like a reason why you can trust her and a reason why you can relate to her. Because she says, teachers understand the worth of every human being and we never give up. So she's saying that teachers like herself, because here she's talking about other people, but she already said that she was a teacher so this is myself that she's actually talking about. Understand that worth of every human being and never give up. And so, you know, that's the, the why you should listen to me. And then she dives into this whole, I've got a plan for this. I've got a plan for that. I've got a plan for the other thing. And she's like, again, listing off things in that rapid fire, one after another after another, not giving you time to sit down and actually critically think and critically analyze, you know, is this really a plan? Where is this plan? How do I read this plan? I'm sure it's implied. I'm sure it's on our website somewhere. But, you know, it almost doesn't matter whether she actually has a plan or not. She can say that. And then uh, you're sort of left wondering, perhaps, whether or not she actually has a plan for that. Or if you're going along with her in her, you know, cadence of I've got a plan, I've got a plan, I've got a plan. You're not wondering what that is because you agree with all of the things that she's saying because all of them are red meat for the Democrats. So because you agree with all of these things that should be done, then, you know, what does it matter whether she has a plan or not? Like you're not asking, you're not even asking that question. And so, you know, I found that really interesting how she does that. Yeah, she's definitely calling back to all of the values that the people there are going to find acceptable. Right. And this is, of course, we can expect this to happen because we have 19 you know, candidates here who are, you know, giving these speeches and it's not just them, it's others within the party who are there, people who are former people who are, you know, involved in administrative and a lot of them are giving, giving speeches. And what Elizabeth Warren is doing here is really acknowledging some of those, those bits. You know, I would agree with Alex that I don't think that she quite as is relatable as some of the other ones, at least not in this speech, because, what happens is, first of all, she just sounds like she's tired. She sounds like she's out of energy. Like her voice just sounds like it's about to give out at any at any moment. Um, and how she's becoming relatable, it doesn't quite land. So she talks about my daddy was a janitor, right? So just using that word daddy, you know, it makes it more than, you know, my dad was a janitor. Like, oh, well, this is about the, the home. This is about the family. 
And no matter how much Elizabeth Warren really talks about her roots in Oklahoma and, you know, how she, you know, got started, um, what is she, you know, where is she now? And what is she, you know, talking about? Um, you know, this idea of the special needs teacher. So a couple of things I noticed from what she was saying, you know, one is that she said, here's, here's the plan. You know, people are ready for a change. Um, and I've got a plan. Well, one of my plans is to put a tax on the top one tenth of 1% and make them pay two cents. They can afford it. Now, two cents on what? That's the question. Okay, and what can we do with those two cents? Well, she goes on to talk about all of the things that we can do, including canceling student loan debt and so on and so forth. The part that was really kind of interesting here and made my ears perk up was when she said, I've got a plan to protect Roe versus Wade, regardless of what the Supreme Court does. Now, it's really, if you think about it, um, I think that politicians oftentimes will go along with government when it serves them, and when it doesn't serve them, they all of a sudden reject government. So when we talk about going against the Supreme Court, that seems almost Trumpian. That seems almost, you know, very, we're going to just change the government and we don't care what the government actually does. And I'm very curious to find out what her plan is about this. Um, but she goes into this plan, which is, you know, definitely something that people might want to check out. And that as she then ends it up, right, what does she ended up with? Well, the big picture aspiration, we should dream big, fight hard, and win. And then she, you know, just says, thank you, Iowa. And how are we going to win? What does that mean? You know, exactly how is she actually going to implement her plans? I feel like she's a little bit like Bernie in the sense of, well, let's talk about the big plan and then we're going to find some way to implement it later. But we don't know exactly, you know, how that's actually going to happen. And, you know, one of the funny things here that I just have to point out, one of her plans is to break the stranglehold of the NRA. Uh, what? How? Is that even a plan? Like, <laughs> you just break. It's like I referenced this in a previous episode, but it's like Bernie Sanders. One of his campaign promises in 2016 was to end racism. Okay, right. Good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> like th- these aren't plans, but but you know you really don't get to a point where you're actually asking that question of her, and so you know that's what makes it persuasive and and makes it interesting because you just agree. Um, and that's fine. And, and that's just like that, that, that is how politicians are able to influence people. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting because that's kind of where we are right now, you know, especially within the Democratic Party to say, you know, do people even care about whether the plans can be implemented or not? Or are they content with the big ideas? You know, it's this big fight against, well, do we need a more progressive candidate or do we need a more moderate one? And we say the moderates have more electability and maybe their ideas make sense. But then maybe we also need someone as crazy as Trump or as you know outlandish as Trump to be able to go up against him. And having these types of ideas, you know, maybe that's what Elizabeth Warren is really looking to demonstrate is just I have ideas and we'll figure out later how we're going to implement them. All right. I think that's all the time we've got for today. Check out our website at subliminallycorrect.com. You can find our Patreon there. Be sure to donate. You can donate as little as a cup of coffee just to keep us on the air. 
Head on over to Twitter and Facebook. Send us your comments, your thoughts on each episode, even your questions. Uh, if you guys ask good questions, we'll even answer some on the air. If you really like the show, be sure to head on to iTunes and remember to rate and review us. We'd love to see even more ratings. That's how our show becomes so popular. So be sure to head on over there, rate us, give us five stars, and in two weeks we'll talk to you again. 